This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Machismo and Vernon Wells. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. There's no jokes on this show. That should just be the beginning of every show. Forbidden. No. no. <laughs> welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture. And not only that, but also its influence today. Bonus. Hey, my name's Will, and joining me are my friends and co-hosts, Kat and John. Hey guys. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Thank you so much for asking me to join. Yeah, if you don't recognize the, uh, what, the uh, sultry, sultry baritone, is that a mm-hmm. proper, I don't know. Is that of what that John, is? Yeah. Of John, this is- Dulcet tones. We call them dulcet. Dulcet. Yeah, dulcet. <laughs> I thought I had those. Oh. Huh. This is almost tapping into my questions about masculinity in the 1980s. Does mm-hmm. dulcet, mm-hmm. Now, now, does that refer, that must be of the same origin as dulcimer. But oh, that just means mm-hmm. sweet. It just means sweet in some language. Mm-hmm. Some yeah, yeah, yeah. In Latin, yeah. which does describe cat to a T. There you oh, go. Okay. Oh, so you both have sweet tones, but this yeah. one, yeah. the male one though, is from from Gen X grown up. And thanks for coming back. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that. Hey, this is I've been counting. This is yep. one, two. This is my third opportunity oh. to sit in on what Yay. is, by my estimation, mm-hmm. the second best '80s themed podcast on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought for sure you were going to say, by my estimation, is also a podcast. <laughs> yes. He qualifies a podcast. That's true. No. Again, thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And for more, uh, you know, nerdy retro type content that uh, covers our generation of in, our, in, the interests of our generation, you should check out John and his friends over at Gen X Grown Up. Yes, you um, should. And on this, on this show, wait, don't go. Not now. Don't do it, don't do it now. <laughs> Later. Not this moment. They're like, well, there's not going to be any jokes on this one. On, there's lots of jokes on John's show. Mm-hmm. In fact, they it's just did an April funny. Fool's joke that it seems like a lot of folks didn't get. <laughs> they didn't get. <laughs> That's oh, what this show that. is? <laughs> oh, no. You know, Kat recently got a one-star yeah. review for not knowing much about the 80s. But John, you got some kind of review you responded to because folks didn't understand you were joking. That's right. Yeah. We, we had one of our followers who had suggested us to a friend yeah. and the reply in Facebook that, that he got was like, tried to listen. It was ridiculous. Couldn't do it. Nope. <laughs> and he replied, yeah. no, no, that's the April Fool's episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was something in there about zip ties. They're teaching us about zip ties. Yeah. 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 We talked about zip ties. We talked about Spock's brain, the worst episode yeah. of Star Trek ever that we enjoyed watching. Yeah. We, we, one, one of these guys got a toothbrush. Yeah, he talked about right. a new piece of technology. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And someone thought that was legitimately what we do, which yeah. it's, I, am I mean, kind of is, it. but not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen. Yeah. So there's plenty of jokes oh, there. Thank you. On today's yeah. show mm-hmm. here though, instead in lieu of that, we're going to be talking about machismo in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and 1980s films, I guess a little more specifically, but maybe also how we got there. And a little bit later, we're going to speak with a man who epitomized, I think, embodied 1980s masculinity in many of his roles mm. throughout that decade. I'm talking about mm-hmm. actor Vernon Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember, well, John, if this is the same for you, but I first remember seeing Vernon as the sociopathic Wes in the sequel to Mad Max, Road Warrior. The Road Warrior, yeah, with his pink <laughs> mohawk and mm-hmm. his his raging tendencies. Oh yeah. Yeah. And everybody in my, uh, my friend group wanted a wrist crossbow after that film. 
In fairness, I always wanted a wrist crossbow, oh. but my desire did increase after I saw yes. the portrayal of Wes. Now I also wanted leather chaps. <laughs> assless. Asterisk assless. <laughs> Mom, on the Christmas list, you didn't flip it over and follow where the asterisk went. <laughs> yeah, they're chaps, but. <laughs> but. but. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> All right, let's get caught up on 1980s news. Hey, per the Los Angeles Times, mm-hmm. this is such a bummer. But you know what? I, I don't. I, I don't. Yeah. Fe- look, as we get older here, uh, I feel like we can't avoid these stories anymore because they're happening no. to the folks we love and admire and have mm-hmm. since our, we were kids, and mm-hmm. they're happening to us and our loved ones in our own homes, neighborhoods, communities, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the LA Times reports that the concerns about Bruce Willis is declining cognitive state. Uh, rumors about them have been swirling around sets for years. So mm-hmm. last week. Uh, we learned that unfortunately Bruce Willis was retiring because uh, he is suffering from a disorder called aphasia. Uh, mm-hmm. His family uh, reported, sent out a message saying, a quote, as a result of this and with much consideration, Bruce is stepping away from the career that has meant so much to him, end quote. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, aphasia is a, a disorder that affects, it, I learned about this because I was reading about it. There's two different ways it could go, but one of them, the way it seems that uh, Bruce is suffering from is one where you can't understand words. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you would also right. speak in a way that to others sounds like gibberish, where you're mm-hmm. making up words or putting words together that don't make otherwise make sense. Yep. Uh, the thing that came out to, in this LA Times story that I thought was interesting and alarming to me was that folks have been concerned about him for years. Mm-hmm. And it may be the explanation for why in the recent years he's been doing so many low budget, unappreciated, let's face it, just terrible films. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm afraid that, you know, folks are taking advantage of Bruce and just as a money grab because he doesn't mm-hmm. seem to even be in a state to know. Right. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, covering going on and um, yeah, just a- attempts to make him seem like he used to be, but it yeah. sounds like that mm-hmm. was getting a bit too much and potentially unsafe. So yeah. yeah. In the wake of this story, I heard maybe... <laughs> I don't think I ever would have said classy and the Razzies in the same sentence before, but I heard a really classy thing that came out of the Razzies. Okay. Mm-hmm. They had awarded some recent film he did as being, you know, ridiculous and horrible and poor performances. When they found mm-hmm. out that he'd been suffering from this disorder, mm-hmm. they they withdrew the Razzie from him. Oh, wow. They said, you know what? Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. get it anymore. You didn't mm-hmm. earn it. You're um, not actually bad. You're just suffering. So oh, it's exactly. a reverse. It's like having your Oscar taken, but the good yeah. way. It's like mm-hmm. we decided you you aren't crumbing any longer. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really nice gesture by what is largely a joke organization has right. become kind of recognized. But they yeah, they took away his Razzie, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah, actually, it was part of the joke was they had given him multiple Razzies, like for mm. all of those movies oh, that it? Will oh, just yeah. mentioned. <laughs> it was like a whole collection mm-hmm. of Razzies for him that they decided to uh, yep. not. They don't apply any yeah. longer. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew the Razzies could be classy? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So folks, you know, you, you uh, suggested, uh, Kat, there's a lot of work being done to sort of cover for this. And again, Mm -hmm. Bruce couldn't have been complicit in this because he doesn't seem to have the wherewithal wherewithal, to to know that what's going on, but they were doing things like uh, cutting down his dialogue. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were shortening the number of production days. His team would say, you can only have them for two days. And then some of those days Mm -hmm. would get cut in half because, Mm -hmm. you know, around lunchtime uh, he wasn't able to perform anymore. And in one alarming story, he actually fired a gun with blanks uh, Mm -hmm. when he wasn't supposed to on a set, uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, by some different accounts, you know, in the very least frightened uh, some and uh, 
mm-hmm. alarmed others. Um, yeah. The, look, I don't know if you're like me and maybe it's more, I think I've always been like this, but certainly now in my fifties, <laughs> if someone has a sickness, I automatically want to know what's the chances of me getting it. <laughs> so, oh boy. The, this uh, disorder affects about 180,000 Americans, new Americans every year. So every year mm-hmm. we get another 180,000 yeah. diagnoses, but Mm-hmm. When you can consider we've got about 260 million uh, adults in the country, that's less than a percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually caused by actually damage to the brain, most often uh, a stroke. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and look, yeah. I say I wanted to, we can't avoid these stories, you know, for reasons because they're happening more and more, unfortunately. But also this is a man who like to get this pointed to our topic. Another gentleman mm-hmm. who, you know, was part of that, uh, you know, string of films, every film almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, had a, a single man, you know, who was going to save mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, speaking of having your award taken away, John, and other mm-hmm. 80s news, yeah. per People Magazine, mm-hmm. Tiffany Hatter says Will Smith stood up for his wife at the Oscars. And it was, quote, the most beautiful thing I've seen, end quote. So for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, what rock are you living under? But uh, during this year's mm-hmm. uh, 94th Academy Awards, Chris Rock, who was uh, introducing award for best documentary, joked to Will's wife in the audience, Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see you. At first, Will, who's 53, and I think that might be relevant to our discussion, mm-hmm. laughed from his seat while Jada, eyes rolled, it seemed like, something like that. She was not approving. Then mm-hmm. Will's demeanor changes. He saunters up on stage and slaps Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he returns to his seat and dis- decides to scream out, you know, keep your keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, as has been reported in the news. Jade has been open about it. She suffers from an autoimmune disorder, alopecia. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks, you know, aren't sure whether Chris Rock was aware of this, but it seems like that's based, based on even uh, Will Smith's later comments. That's what put him over the edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I guess for, well, I don't know. We, we should, we should tackle this first. I guess the, the point of this story that, as I mentioned, is that Tiffany Haddish, you know, who's a woman in her forties and you've seen her in lots of different movies, including 2017's girls mm-hmm. trip, which also had Jada in it mm-hmm. said that quote, when I see a black man stand up for his wife, this meant so much to me as a woman who has been unprotected for someone to say, keep your wife's name out of your mouth, leave my wife alone. That's what your husband is supposed to do. End quote. Um, she seems to ignore the assault, the physical assault mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the part that's problematic for me too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Chris Rock and I, we travel in the same circles. We have yes. lunch often and I wasn't aware that <laughs> Jada had alopecia. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently it was common knowledge to a lot of people, but Chris and I hadn't mentioned it. So yeah, <laughs> no? who knows if he knew, but it's the physical right. altercation. It's the, it's yep. the public display of aggression that was mm-hmm. unnecessary. I, I think. I mean, you, you can stand up for someone without being, you know, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the last thing you do, not the first thing you do. Right. His action, his, his react, or reaction did not match what, what yeah. was happening there. Yeah. And, and this is tricky because I mean, no disrespect to Tiffany Haddish. She has her own personal life experience that she's looking at this um, situation from. But I, I kind of bristle at the suggestion that it's just a hus- husband's job to stand up for their wife. And it, I, because I believe it should be the same for both, both mm-hmm. standing up for the other. And also why wouldn't she also be able to stand up for herself? I don't believe that Jada was right. incapable of that. And it could have been handled privately with words <laughs> afterward, mm-hmm. yeah. not the way it was handled. So, so yeah. what do you think about this suggestion? Now, Jada, look, she's, she's, four, I'm sorry, not Jada. 
Tiffany is 42. Mm-hmm. So she's, is, how, mm-hmm. it, we do measure generations by a decade or eight years. Is there a, it's uh, a little, I want to say she's a generation. She's yeah, not it's, Gen it's X like 15 or so years, but yeah, okay. she's, she's a little young to be a Gen Xer. Yeah. She's she right on the inch. Yeah. Right, like what, an older millennial mm-hmm. or really young Gen Xer maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess she would have been born in 80 though. Huh. All right. So she's on the cusp, maybe, mm-hmm, maybe. Mm-hmm. But my point is, and the question I'm going to ask you guys is that her comment that that's what your husband is supposed to do. Is that, was that something that, again, I'm trying to point this all to our sort of overall topic. Mm-hmm. Was that something that was in, engendered? Is that the right word? Uh, taught to us during our generation as Gen X. Were men, were women expecting that when we were growing up and were men trying to, you know, teach their sons, it's, you know, and so on. Do you think? Right. I feel like that could have roots in um, the generations before us. And Mm. perhaps it was still being carried through to um, things that we were shown in films. But I feel like our generation witnessed, um, there was definitely some one-sidedness, but I feel like it started to maybe come into a little bit of a balance in the 80s. I don't feel like it was all you know, the, only the man can be strong and, and mm-hmm. protect people. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that that was an exclusive message for us, but you know, I do feel like previous generations uh, had that. <laughs> Go ahead, John. No, I wouldn't disagree with you, Kat. I, it, this is all based on the presupposition that media has such a direct influence on our behavior. You know, how, how long have we heard, oh, well, violent video games, mm-hmm. you know, lead people to mm-hmm. violence. And oh, mm-hmm. so therefore, you know, it is a presupposition that, oh, well, you know, macho guys in the films of the 80s, you know, led to a uh, an aggressive sort of invulnerable or, or front of invulnerability. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't have emotions and I'm tough and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I mean, oh, I'm sure we'll get into debating some of that a little later, yep. but <laughs> none of that is an excuse for what we're talking about in the news item, which yeah. is is a is a public act of aggression on a yeah. very broad stage. When it, as you said, Cat, it could have been handled privately. If you want to punch him, do it later after the show. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. right? And even that, like showing love, even a fierce love, it, it doesn't have to include assault. In any mm-hmm. form, yeah. <laughs> it, it um, as long as there's no urgent danger to life or limb, that that yeah, it just seems like it was. It was a comedian's joke. Was it in bad yeah. taste? That comedians ride the edge all the time. And yes. it, it, Rock even said, "Man, it's a joke. It's right. a joke." Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, mm-hmm. I understand the position. It's a joke too far. I just, I'm not going to repeat my what you've all said. Wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and will of course the. The day later, we'll apologize for this on Instagram <laughs> writing. Violence in all its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behavior at last night's Academy Awards was unacceptable and inexcusable. Mm-hmm. Uh, jokes at my expense are part of the job, but a jo- <laughs> this is so funny because he almost seems like he's equivocating here. But a joke yeah. about Jada's medical condition was too much for me to bear, and I reacted emotionally. I was out of line and I was wrong. I was embarrassed for my actions. I'm sorry, I am embarrassed, and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me because, and, I, and you know, we'll probably talk about this a little bit maybe, but when we talk about the machismo in the 1980s films and culture, I guess, but um, the idea that you'd be offended by a joke really suggests that you're a weak person, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And slapping, mm-hmm. whereas you think slapping someone and then, and then ultimately having to, you know, use force, that really right. shows you're a weak person to me, not a, you know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess it shows people, a very thin skin is what it yeah. shows. Yes. Yeah. It's like, oh, you got right to my core with that little joke. You yeah. Know, as, uh, yeah. Exactly. And I think it was about more than 
Jada, but personally, just oh I God. think he was triggered by mm-hmm. deeper issues, which I, I get, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you read there. about their, their relationship in the news, I mean, yeah, it's a lot going on there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, another 1980s news, speaking with Yahoo Entertainment News, a co-lead of Devo, Gerald Casali explained the true meaning of their 1980s hit, Whip It. I don't know that I ever had a consideration what it was, except, Mm-mm. huh, I guess I felt like it meant getting something done. But as they suggest, mm-hmm. uh, over the years that uh, they, d- they had done a number of interviews at the time, and interviews would suggest that the song was about masturbation or sadomasochism. <laughs> so when they came time to make a music video for it, which was played all the time on MTV, because MTV mm-hmm. had just started. In fact, it was MTV's who approached Devo and said, hey, will you make a music video for this song, Whip It, which is now a huge success, an unlikely mm-hmm. hit mm-hmm. from this uh, unusual band from Akron, Ohio. <laughs> yes. Uh, because Sally, who directed that video and most of their videos, decided that he's going to put everything in it that he's heard people think it are ba- it's about. <laughs> so if you look at it, there's all these variations of things being whipped and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, again, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe stereotypical m- men being men, you know, a woman's clothes mm-hmm. are being whipped off. Mm-hmm. Someone's firing a gun. Mm-hmm. A man, it's consensual relationship, but a man takes a woman to a house and makes love, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, did you guys, did whip you guys, good. do you guys remember There's the music? cream being whipped? Right, well, the, and I think actually a line in the song is right. Something about before the cream something. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you yep. remember this music video? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody does. But not as, yeah, yeah, I saw it, but here I saw it, yep. but I don't think I really, I wasn't saw thinking it. too hard about what I was watching. <laughs> in the spiritual sense, she didn't see it, but she did yeah. visually see it. Yeah. 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 I never put two, two together. Whip It, to me, was just a fun song. I never tried to figure yes. out what it meant. And yeah. I figured, yep. hey, maybe it's something a little naughty. Hey, yep. it's the 80s and it's music. There's going to be something a little naughty in it. Who cares? <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me it was about mm-hmm. something naughty. I had no idea. I just, no. Well, it's not. Yeah. That's their <laughs> right? point. I guess. Oh, no, you know, you don't know that because I didn't tell you that yet. Oh, so they made this video sort of making light of all these things that folks were, you know, expecting it was about. But they said it actually turns out that it was a, uh, let's see, as sub- this is according to their interview with Yahoo News, of course, that Whippet, like most Devo songs, was subversive, but in a multi-layered way that went over most listeners' heads. Quote, it was a humorous exercise. We were talking about how in America there's that obsession with obsessionism. Like, mm-hmm. you're number one, individual, everybody's a winner. And so it was lyrics that were parried, parried, parrying. <laughs> it were lyrics <laughs> that were parrying, parrying. Oh, wow. That kind see, we don't let this stuff part this part out, John. Is that, is that a bird? Is that a kind of bird? Right? That's what I, well, there's, parroting. Yeah, there's parroting. There, there's I used parody. to have a parroting as a pet. A parroting? <laughs> I made it a parroting with a parrot once, and it made a parroting. Is, is uh, it parodying? Parrot. Par- what is it? Parody. Parody. Ing. Ing. Parodying. 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 And so was lyrics that were parodying. Parodying. That kind of go get em positivism. You know, when I was a kid, I remember, I don't do this anymore, but I didn't understand metaphor and like poetry. Like I didn't expect lyrics to be abstract Mm -hmm. and people to speak Mm -hmm. in double entendre, which they did a lot, especially when the euphemisms for sex and stuff like that. Folks were clever back Mm -hmm. then. It wasn't like Nicki Minaj where they just said it. (laughs) Just said it. Yeah. And so I think whip it. I probably just thought it meant literally whipping something. I, yeah. 
pretty much. What? I don't know. A problem. They say when a problem comes along. So I guess I did get, that's probably where it, my analysis mm-hmm. ended. That's where it ended. Can I add something in yeah. here? Um, I, on Wikipedia, I found this interesting quote by Steve Huey uh, from a publication called All Music. Yep. And he mm-hmm. notes um, that the song has violent undertones, despite mm-hmm. being a novelty song. Um, he describes <laughs> the process of whipping it to solve one's problems yeah. as a sardonic portrait oh! of a general- Written by Will Smith. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who knew? It did indoctrinate a young Will Smith. <laughs> of a the general problem problematic you aspect must <laughs> of the American psyche. Yes. The predilection for using force and yep. violence to solve mm. problems, vent frustration, and prove oneself to others. So, yeah, interesting, huh? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, oof. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's I, right I on topic that. here. Whether, oh, what begets some me. academic who doesn't like whip it. That's what I read in there. Yeah. That's, that's what I say. <laughs> in other 1980s news, mm-hmm. per Entertainment Weekly, this is the most fun story for me. Yeah. Per for Entertainment Weekly, Ewan McGregor gets caught using the force on automatic sliding <laughs> doors. <laughs> so. Ewan McGregor's returning to Star Wars for the first time in 17 years with the upcoming Disney Plus show, mm-hmm. Obi-Wan. But it turns out he didn't give up his Jedi training in the interim. Uh, when he was asked during this interview with Entertainment Weekly whether he's ever tried to use the Jedi mind trick, he first responded, quote, no, not really. I mean, I've been accused of doing it here and there, <laughs> but no, I don't think so, end quote. But then McGregor indicated he uses another power in the Jedi arsenal, quote, I do it with doors. <laughs> uh, and as he's doing the interview, you can see this video online uh, at Entertainment Weekly. He does the hand gesture, you know, explaining how uh, he said, Love quote, you know, it. like at the supermarket or something, when I'm wheeling my trolley out and I do a little, <laughs> he said, making the gesture. It's always for my own amusement because it makes me laugh, but occasionally I've been caught doing that and it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> John, do you do that? The force gesture when you're at the Target or uh, Walmart, hmm. uh, doors or the doors. No, no, you know, it's just because I'm not a big no. enough Star Wars nerd. I think I probably <gasps> I, 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 get off easy, the show. Get easy. off! It's a hate. It's just not big dreams. enough to, to do off the force the gesture all the time. But <laughs> I certainly have done a like a parting of the seas or something magical gesture. Certainly, just I just don't think I'm a Jedi. I'm not into done, Jedi. I'm into Moses. Moses, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can step on the fish on the floor bed. It's wonderful. It's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah. done Alohomora, like you know Harry oh. Potter. Uh, oh, there we well, go. Yeah, with my Alohomora. Kids. Is that a Hawaiian spell <laughs> for conjuring that, a lay? That, <laughs> Wait, Alohomora is that for opening things? That's the door opening spell. Oh, okay. oh Alohomora. Yep. Get uh, off the show, cat. You too. <laughs> It's just wrong generation. And it's the uh, Will Show. We're all done. <laughs> John's too far in the past. I'm too far. In the- you know what's great about John's show is he talks about lots of things because he's a Gen X grown up. And mm-hmm. so uh, he would allow that. But I don't. Get off. Go on his show. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Bye. Oh, I don't know. What is this show anymore anyway? Now, I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you one Not better. funny. Because look, I do this. I still do it. I didn't know he did it. That's really cool that he mm-hmm. does it to me. I am a big Star Wars nerd. I equally mm-hmm. like Star Trek too. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. that's my dream. The, uh, the, the thing that I did, I, I haven't done it in a while. And, you know, now in my 50s, I don't know that I would dare to do it. But I did what I call the Indiana Jones. Oh. Get a shopping. I've really done this. You get a shopping cart. You got to get some speed up in the parking lot. 
Oh my gosh. Run on the shopping cart. You jump on it, right? On the side. And while it's rolling freely through the parking lot, you maneuver from one side of the shopping cart to the other. Mm. You've done this? I've done that, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At least twice. <laughs> How many injury. times has the shopping cart fallen over and caused you great, <laughs> great pain? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Lost a lot of groceries. Do you think do you drop in front and, and like roll underneath the cart? That's the, that's the really, <laughs> that seals it. <laughs> well, you're right. It was... You know, I was really more thinking about the, that same scene, but getting mm-hmm. from one side of yeah, the truck yeah. to the other. But you, sure. <laughs> you got to finish it. Be, when you, <laughs> I can't imagine. That'd be so funny. Oh Tell my, my wife, God. I'm going to do this, and I just lay down. Boom, 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 boom. It'll be over. Clearance. You'll be fine. My nose will be broken. <laughs> I got when you first started your story, I was going to yeah. say, oh, maybe that's why my husband does that. But he only, he takes a running start and he just yeah. jumps on and the stands side on the back rail. The handle oh, yeah. Is. Yeah. yeah, he just stays on oh, the back Everybody does I that. I fear that's what would happen to everybody. Oh, <laughs> yes. well, yeah, I know. But it's like a Harry Potter thing. Too new. Cat, go. Right. <laughs> that's called the Nimbus or something. Get off. Get off the show. <laughs> you and your husband. <sighs> All right. Hey, that was, I'm going to call it 1980s news. I don't know that you could say it. What it really look. Hey, if you enjoy the show, and you're probably not enjoying this episode, but do me a favor anyway, and still, it's not John's fault or Kat's fault. Please like it, rate, review it, subscribe, do all those things that help other folks find out about the show. It Mm -hmm. really does help. And most of the things you could do are free. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right, hey, in a little bit, we're going to bring out our guest, Vernon Wells, actor and star of, okay, we got the Road Warrior. He was also in, uh, he made the same appearance as that character in Weird Science. You remember that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say Weird uh, Science. Yeah. In uh, mm-hmm. Inner Space, he ha- I don't think he has a single line in Inner Space, but he plays a Mr. Igo, who's sort of the uh, right. assassin sent to get the chip from mm-hmm. uh, inside of Martin Short's body. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a what great about movie Commando? Too. Commando, he mm-hmm. plays Bennett. Mm-hmm. Yes, of yep. course. Mm-hmm. He has a wonderful mm-hmm. death in Commando. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what is the line that uh, uh, Arnold <gasps> says to him after he puts him on that pipe? Something like, lit up some steam. Lit up some, <laughs> some steam. Yeah. So before that, though, I wanted to just talk to you guys briefly. We sort of touched upon it a little bit already about this idea of machismo in the 1980s films, you know, and I did a little bit of research and probably more research than I'll ever share with you guys in this short time that we have here. But we talked about this somewhat with David Sirota, and I'm not certainly an academic like he is, but this idea and John was touching upon it, like it's sort of almost a chicken and egg thing. What begets what art imitating life or life imitating art. But mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of folks, at least certainly in the 1980s point to, and, and David Sirota in particular, point to what happened in our media to what was happening in our society and, and politics at the time. And some of the mm-hmm. research I did even points out how in the 1970s it was already happening because of uh, civil rights movement was continuing. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, more women were entering the workforce. And so yeah, this is some academic papers. We could talk about what, you know, to what extent these things r- resonate with us. Uh, that men, you know, men felt uh, threatened <laughs> and therefore, and I don't know, they didn't have a meeting because I wasn't invited. I was a child at the time, but- We were boys uh, then, start, that's why they didn't invite us. Yes, they start mm. to uh, act in ways to assert dominance. Because you look, anybody who feels threatened at some point, you know, whether they realize it consciously or subconsciously, will take a move to, you know- uh, negate that, I guess, that it mm-hmm. meant. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was already happening in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1980s, as David Sirota, you know, uh, posits, is that Reaganism had a big influence on the media. Uh, and this idea that, you know, we were going to be a world force, which we were, we had a strong, you know, we 
demonstrated we had a strong military, a strong foreign policy, but Reagan was also was elected on an anti-government stance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he believed everybody could uh, pull up, pull themselves up from their bootstraps, so to speak, um, and shouldn't expect any help from the government. Um, and as a result, as David points out, you get shows like Knight Rider, The A-Team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you get, um, what else? And so on and so forth. You know, you get your <laughs> Delta Forces, your Commandos, mm-hmm. where we have, mm-hmm. you know, we could even say Die Hard, where it's a guy who alone mm-hmm. can solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think when I, when I was reading these different various, various uh, academic papers in, about the machismo in 1980s films, uh, some of them talk about hypermasculinity and the idea of hypermasculinity, which unlike the 70s, which was happening in the 80s and has declined since, is that added to that already, which was already, you know, sort of percolating, was the fact that we now use the male form. And I'm talking about the exaggerated male form. Just think your Arnold Schwarzenegger is a prime mm-hmm. example as a shorthand for what it was to be masculine. So look, I am muscular. So therefore you understand I'm powerful. I am dominant, you know, I am alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so and this, this is what seems to be particularly unique to uh, the 1980s. And I think it probably is in due in part to this, you know, sort of a nexus between the politics of the time and, and the interest in exercise. Because we know in 1980s, Pumping Iron came out in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Arnold made a star of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno right away. Mm-hmm. And in the 1980s, we think we talked about this before, there was a boom suddenly in gyms. This idea of having a gym, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. such a phenomenon as it was in the 1980s. You yeah, had workout it, videos. It used to be so working out yeah. was not a thing, yep. you know. Mm-hmm. Being right, a bodybuilder right. or going to the gym, that was that was a niche thing. You know, and now you're right. Mm -hmm. As we move through the eighties, as people were kind of trying to, or felt maybe they needed to strive to attain that, uh, that ideal image, gym, (laughs) gym memberships and gym, you know, stores opening just blew up because people Mm -hmm. were saying, Oh, I want to go do that. I want to do what I saw in the movies. I want to look like that guy. Or they, as you said, they want, they feel they need that visual representation, that body image Mm -hmm. to match that Mm -hmm. level of dominance or superiority or alphaness, if you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think of it as, as being specific to, uh, science fiction, but they try not point out like the Terminator played mm-hmm. by Arnold Schwarzenegger sure. again. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent yeah. shape. Yeah. Even RoboCop had metal abs, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, talk about the Terminator. I mean, there's even a line in Terminator where Sarah Connor is talking about all these men came and went and none of them were good enough to be a father figure until this, and they're talking about the Terminator until this robot came along. And so this ideal form oh. was the first man image as a robot, but that could yeah. fulfill the role mm-hmm. of a real masculine dominant father for her son. That huh. is super interesting. So what you're referring yeah. to is actually Terminator 2. Yes. And what yep, makes that's, that, yeah, yeah. And what makes that interesting, and you're sort of jumping ahead, but you know, the one paper that I read uses that as sort of bookends to the phenomena that happened in the 1980s. Cause they pointed out at the beginning of the 1980s, you got this Terminator, this muscular form who is Again, and, and I should add in that along with this hypermasculinity, these, you know, the, and, and what the physical form stood for included the fact that we were, imp- men were impenetrable emotionally as well, that those mm-hmm. things were feminine. But anyway, mm-hmm. but then come the 1990s at the beginning of the 90s, we get Terminator 2 where now you're already seeing a softening of that idea because now that robot is like you said, a father figure. He's the caretaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, from then on, we have uh, different role models in, in science fiction and action films as far as the 90s goes. Keanu Reeves was big in the 90s. Neo was mm-hmm. sort of this androgynous almost character and shared equal powers with Trinity, you know, it's mm-hmm. different by then. Mm-hmm. So in talking about hypermasculinity, just so we're on the same page, I saw a number of different mm-hmm. sort of explanations. And these are, and these are academic papers written in the 1990s. So they weren't okay. too far from the decade reflecting okay. on the media of the era yeah. in, in particular films. But this, this one in particular, a definition I thought is most relevant to our discussion here was written by Marianne, I'm going to say Cacvern. Cacvern is probably some. Mm-hmm. Cacvern. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, this uh, in the uh, let's see this appeared in the 2012 French Journal of Media Studies, and Macron wrote that uh, quote and that defined a rather hypermasculinity as a quote excessive yet glorified represent, representation of masculine attributes, implying a heightened visibility of the male body as a spectacle, while associating masculinity with dominance, violence, and physical force. Mm-hmm. And I say that because a lot of the stuff we touched upon, you know, talking about um, what it meant to be a man or hyper masculine and how, what the shorthand of this muscles were talking about, you know, not being or being impervious rather to emotions, being mm-hmm. more logical, but also this expectation that they would use force and violence and much that we were talking about, you know, Will Smith earlier Mm-hmm. as a reaction or to address a problem, as they said in Whip It. Well, this is all coming together. It's like a It is. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's big guns yeah. in every sense of the word, right? You had, yep. you had a mm-hmm. very beefy guy with you know, big biceps mm-hmm. and, you know, rippling muscles. And then he had a huge machine gun or pistols or something. I mean, yep. Those were mm-hmm. side by side on almost every 80s action film. If you saw a big beefy guy, he had a big beefy gun. And those, <laughs> yeah. those went together, you know, that. Yeah. Or a big threatening knife. <laughs> a big Bowie knife, right? Yeah. Maybe in his teeth. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize until they pointed this out, but that, this seems so obvious now, but that as a result of this, again, no one got together in a room and said, let's make all these movies look like this, or let's do this, right. or this is going to be the, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. most of these characters were nude or partially nude. Terminator <laughs> arrives nude. So Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. is like half nude in pretty much every film. Well, he had to because uh, you could only transport organic material through the vortex. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> it was right. not by design. That's how the time travel oh, machine right. worked. Oh, and then okay. we get the Terminator 2 and I'm like, how'd they get that dude through? <laughs> He's just all metal. Liquid metal. <laughs> right? I mean, did they explain that? I don't remember. Let's so moving pots. Uh, what I thought was interesting, and I don't know what the relevance is this necessarily, but you know, when we see these films as kids and we just see the end result of the hours and hours of the exercise that they did, quote, working out mm-hmm. in these gyms, we were spared of the, you know, sort of the, the trials that are necessary to become that way. And all we see is that's what it is to be a man. Right. Not the right. work that necessarily to become, even if you were aspired to be that or, you know, behave that way. Mm-hmm. You know, look, and John was sort of linked to this, maybe there's a debate to be had about the influence on us as, you know, young people uh, and mm-hmm. the expectations from ourselves or from mm-hmm. our peers as to mm-hmm. what it meant to be a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My friend group, oh my gosh, you know, they were juicing, they were working mm-hmm. out all the time. I mm-hmm. was not interested at all. So it definitely... They, I mean, you know, they aspire to look like Rambo and behave like Rambo in some regards. Mm-hmm. They had the well, knife with I. the compass in it. Oh, Kat did too. All right. Well, there, <laughs> seriously, did, is that right? Oh, you did? No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> you got to wonder if it's which end of the chicken or egg thing this come from. Yep. It comes from, as you mm-hmm. said, it, look, nobody got together in a boardroom and said, all right, was it 82? 
all men are muscular and shirtless in films going forward. I mean, there, that wasn't like an orchestrated plan, right? Right. Everything happens organically and it follows the money. If, yeah. mm-hmm. if, yes. you know, if thin yeah. waif guys with no shirts and bird chests were making money at the box office, <laughs> everyone would have been like that in films. You know, it just so happens. Look, the, the body is not something to be ashamed of. It's something it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a body, right? And a well-toned mm-hmm. athletic body, even if it's exaggerated, you know, there's nothing wrong or profane about wanting to see that. And so if you see that mm-hmm. and it's also being strong and powerful and protective and in some cases it iterated to destructive and violent, but yeah. it wasn't just a, <laughs> hey, let's all do something crazy and violent. I don't believe it was a matter mm-hmm. of a gradual thing that like, hey, pumping iron was great. Let's get him into uh, let's get him into the Conan the Barbarian. People liked that. Maybe he's going to be a movie star. Maybe we need more beefcake guys. It kind of spawned, yeah. I felt, with Arnold. That's where the pumping iron started, as you mentioned. It wasn't a nefarious mm-hmm. plot to go, let's, let's undermine masculinity and make it mean violence. And it, it really, it fed right. itself. As people like that, they wanted to feel powerful. That character in that film looks and feels powerful. If I can emulate that, I feel better about myself. I think that's really, mm-hmm. for me, how it boils down. It's not so black and white. Excellent point. And I'll add to that. And if that guy gets the ladies, you know, I think that was a good part of it for my friends too. Giggity. <laughs> <laughs> These are the people that, were, and that's true today. I mean, certainly that aspect is true today. Whether we had a softening of quote masculinity since since the eighties, although I'd argue maybe we have a rise of masculinity, maybe for similar reasons that we did in the seventies and eighties. You know, Will, to circle back to something you mentioned a minute ago, you talked about in the nineties. You know, uh, Keanu Reeves yep. as Neo in the Matrix. Well. Mm-hmm. When that was very popular, everybody started wearing dark glasses and trench coats. It was because yes. that guy was cool and in control and yeah. I can emulate that, right? It's not just that yeah. it was muscular guys that did it. It's whatever felt powerful and empowering I want to emulate because I want some of that juice. As a lady. <laughs> um, when I, I Just as a side note, anything you just say is as a lady. Yes. <laughs> Oh, thanks for right. reminding I mean, me of that. <laughs> to the best of our knowledge. I just want to give you the lead. If people didn't know from your sweet here. tone. <laughs> My dulcet tones. <laughs> so yeah, when I think of macho, yep. machismo, or masculinity, um, the first Don't include John or I. That one's <laughs> fair. <laughs> we were in no danger. Don't worry. <laughs> we weren't going to be included. I was just trying to pull from 80s media. <laughs> yeah, just do that. <laughs> I'll limit myself. So um, the things that immediately popped into my head were um, like wrestling, WWF wrestling. Mm -hmm. I thought of uh, the Dukes of Hazzard. I thought of Mm. actually Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Mm -hmm. uh, the Rocky movies, of course, Lester Stallone, Um, David Hasselhoff, (laughs) Knight Rider, (laughs) Tom Selleck in Magnum Magnum, PI, but also... um, We've been, uh, we, we discovered the A-team. I mean, I, I already knew about the A-team. I did not just discover the A-team. I need to clarify. I loved the A-team yep. back in the 80s and I'm rediscovering it and loving it on the Roku channel. <laughs> and um, so those, that's what pops into my head. And um, a lot of that strikes me as a bit of a one-sided representation of masculinity or, I mean, none of those are too hyper except for maybe the wrestling or... Uh, or the Rocky movie. But I think back then, not consciously, this is only in retrospect, I wanted a non one-sided a representation of masculinity to connect mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Okay, uh, because that, that was not um, appealing to me. I do think it informed my perception of what it, you know, perhaps what masculinity um, 
is, but I, I wanted something more balanced. Um, and like, I give me Tom Hanks, you know, in, in almost any role <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, that he's in. Um, and I preferred like Luke Skywalker over Han Solo. Uh, at that time when, yeah. when I was younger. So um, many of those 80s films, yeah. uh, super macho guys, Cat. now that you pointed out, they're very just one or two dimensional. You don't see any of, yeah. and no one is like that, obviously. And I'm, this isn't right. going to be a gross yeah, generalization, yeah. but you never, mm-hmm. so never, never, but you never saw <laughs> the nurturing side of that person. Mm-hmm. The, the the calm, mm-hmm. subdued, I'm at home, you know, sipping a tea side of that person because no one is <laughs> absolutely balls to the wall all the time like you see in a film, but right, that's what you saw. Right. And you, yeah, as a real yeah. human being, you, as a young mm-hmm. woman, you wanted someone who was complete, not who's someone who's just that, which I think exactly. was very mature for you. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 I can't speak for other women because frankly, I'm not one, but <laughs> I would think that, <laughs> that once you get Speaking past the superficial, man. sorry, sorry, Will, once you get past the superficiality, <laughs> you realize there's more to it than just that. And that's what you need, right? Is that where you're going? Yes, yeah. far more. Yeah. Yes, that is where I'm going. And I just need to point out Mr. T here because yeah. having just seen him in multiple episodes, pink shirt mm-hmm. and he works well with children. Yes. And I think back like, you know what? <laughs> I know that somehow made an impression upon me. Um, just you know, seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the examples you gave were sort of more of a balance of being a macho man and Mm-hmm. You know, none of them were the, and I guess on t- TV probably too, you had more folks, except for Mr. T was in quite good shape. Mm-hmm. You had less uh, bodybuilders. Uh, right. You could throw Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk. I don't mm-hmm. know that he, any woman was uh, craving a oh, green wow. mate, but um, <laughs> I said mate too, by not meat. Oh, John's raising his hand. Yeah. It was. Oh yeah. Speaking <laughs> as a man. <laughs> I was crushing hard on Lou. Yes. <laughs> and we asked folks in, on Facebook for their suggestions of what were the most macho films of the 1980s were. And we got mm-hmm. so many replies. All right. Of, at least 184 plus here. But I'll give you some here that. Uh, yeah. Um, Atina writes Rambo, Top Gun, Predator. Mickey mm-hmm. writes Sergeant Barnes from Platoon would take everybody. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which one was Sergeant Barnes? Was that. Uh, Willem, see, we got you. Got Willem Dafoe. You got your Charlie Sheen. You got your Tom Berenger. Mm-hmm. Right? Wasn't that platoon? Am I confabulating too far? Whatever. Okay. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Roadhouse. If if you could rip a th- mm. guy's throat out, yeah, Swayze. That's much. Oh yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. That's throw it. Well, you know what? And that's a good. You you talked about how much you love Dirty Dancing, Cat, before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another guy who's in great shape, but he's a mm-hmm. professional dancer. But in other mm-hmm. movies, he's kicking ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is, you and I have the same type. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. Nicholas. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> surprises no one. Uh, Nicole, rather, writes, every which be but loose and any which way you can. Clint Eastwood yeah. will always be macho. Yeah, that's true. And okay. to throw all the dirty Harry movies in there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were plenty no, wait, now, now, when she said every which way but loose, is she talking about Clint Eastwood or is she talking about the orangutan? Which one is she saying is? <laughs> right turn, Clyde. Right turn, Clyde. Yeah. Uh, uh, Commando mm-hmm. Predator. Oh, sorry. Robert writes Commando Predator uh, Rambo mm-hmm. 2. Scott mm-hmm. writes Rocky 4, the movie that brought mm-hmm. down the Soviet Union. Yeah, Patty. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mindy writes Roadhouse. Jessica writes Pee-wee's Big Adventure in the Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> All right, I see the Karate yeah. Kid. Yeah. Well, maybe and, she's going with what you're talking about, Kat. Right. <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, I saw that um, Andrew suggested Terms of Endearment. 
Yeah. Hey, I guess if you can make it through that movie without crying, you're a man. Right. Made a real man. Yeah. yeah. My parents took me to see that when I was a kid. I was like, what is this? <laughs> Why? I see, Cat would prefer an officer and a gentleman. Much more well-rounded characters there. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and let's see one more. Keith writes every damn Arnold movie that was during the 1980s. <laughs> That's true. Even Kindergarten Cop, yeah. he was kicking butt yeah. and punching guys, true. but he was hanging out with kids and, you know, and being, that was kind of, he was getting his comedic chops in there. So it was a more rounded character yeah. being portrayed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So look, I asked both of you guys to take a quiz and I really looked for a fun quiz, you know, because mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I took a bunch of these quizzes and one was a Tony Robbins quiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a little more, uh, th- is that the one I asked you guys to take? No, no, no. Wait, wait, are you saying you, you took quizzes until you got a result you liked and then asked us to take it? Is that what happened here? <laughs> That's what happened, Kat. <laughs> so the quiz was to determine, uh, whether you're more masculine, feminine, or in that test that we ultimately take neutral gender neutral was mm-hmm. actually a, one of the categories you could get. Mm-hmm. Um, it ultimately, the one we settled on was a test that was a little more, let's be honest, it was shorter. <laughs> it, was it was a little lighter and it was kind of the questions that we would expect. Some of them were really, I came across one that was like this quiz. I was th- eight questions in and it says 40 min- minutes to go. It's like, <laughs> what? If you hurry, I'm not going to learn anything. <laughs> I'm not going to learn anything about myself in 40 more minutes. <laughs> but, um, ultimately mine said that I was gender neutral. Really? Hmm, yeah. Are you surprised, Kat? I wouldn't think you'd be surprised. No, I'm only surprised in the context of my result. Oh. Mm. Would you like to guess what I got? Wow. <laughs> now I'm, I would have said, because it, all right, so again, it's masculine, gender, neutral, or feminine. Right. Cat I, 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 is the epitome of femininity to me. So I think she would be predominantly feminine. That's my yeah, guess. That's, now I'm going to tell you, John, and I don't, there's no questions that would point this out, but Cat is a ninja. I mean, in the literal sense, she's a ninja. She studied in jitsu. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. Uh, she, you know, grew up riding ATVs without helmets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of what other, what other things might be stereotypically male that might. So you're trying to portray her as a bit of a tomboy. Is that where you're going? Yeah. Well, I loved my slingshot. Yeah. I had a slingshot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say, well, based on your response, I'm going to guess gender neutral now. Nope. Masculine? <laughs> yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I got, and I, and I took a, a screenshot to at a perfect <laughs> moment of my oh, reaction to being masculine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I got what? the I got the exact same result, Kat. Predominantly yes, masculine with a yes. gif of SpongeBob ripping off his shirt on the beach. <laughs> and I thought John sent that to me as a joke, because that's something John might do to say, look, this is how masculine I am. But that is how masculine the test determined the mm-hmm. both of you are. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> it, it I, wasn't- I like to qualify. I did go back. I retook it out of curiosity what? and I yeah. changed one answer. Okay. Mm-hmm. One answer. And then I was feminine. <laughs> oh, really? what was that question? Oh, it was the one. Are you a fan oh, of Duran Duran? <laughs> <laughs> well, the questions that asked were not things like, you know, do you like trucks or no. do you like dresses? It was like, right, do you like right, to get yeah. to the right. bottom of yeah. a problem? Do you like to talk it out? If a friend has a problem, do yeah. you, mm-hmm. you know, do you want to sit and mm-hmm. talk with them or you want to go out for a beer? You know, those kinds of like behavioral, <laughs> like personality mm-hmm. questions, not like typical right. gender questions, yeah. I think. Yeah. It was, yeah, it yeah. was like back of the ma- allure magazine type questions, you know, or people <laughs> magazine. Cosmo. Yeah, but for me, was, the questions were so close. I mean, I was just trying to think like, yeah. what? you know, they yeah. tell you to go with your first instinct, mm-hmm. you know, like I was like, all right, I'm going with that one. That's the second one. Oh, damn. It was fun to take. 
it was challenging in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, oh wait, I, I don't know if, what I'm what I'm yeah. going to end up with here. Yeah, I think getting like a gender neutral score on that test really just based on the questions, it's about yeah. hey, I'm more contemplative. I like to talk things out. I don't rush to mm-hmm. de- decisions. Things that you might stereotypically put as yeah. a feminine trait and not a macho trait, mm-hmm. possibly. But yeah. you know, right. it just means you're right. you're thoughtful. That's all. I feel like John's saying this because he feels like I might be offended that I might be not, I might not be, I'm not even as masculine as Kat, but I'm not worried about it. (laughs) She beat me in arm wrestling and that settled it for me, you know, months ago. You can't beat a ninja. (laughs) Just don't try. I didn't even know we were arm wrestling until it was over. (laughs) That's how fast it was. Ninjas are arm wrestle like that. (laughs) Thinking about when I was a kid and maybe things that influenced me more than films. You know, and I don't know if we're talking about necessarily the influence of these films so much as the phenomenon of them existing in the 1980s and unique to the 1980s. Again, this idea that we had hyper-masculine characters in these Mm -hmm. in these films. But my dad was a big influence on me, how he behaved. And my dad was a Mm -hmm. Vietnam vet, so he was, you know, (laughs) he was what you would expect, uh, kind of a Uh quick-tempered gentleman. Uh But he was Mm -hmm. also at the same time, Mm -hmm. like we're talking about, contemplative. So he could be a guy who's like, look, this doesn't affect me. I'm not going to react emotionally. Hmm. until mm-hmm. he absolutely had to react and then he would probably mm-hmm. murder somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that had more influence. And I think probably, and again, I'm not trying to defend being gender neutral. I think that's pretty cool. It's like being yeah. ambidextrous, you know? <laughs> but I think one of my other influences and maybe why I lean more that way is my sister in the sense that she was a year younger than me. And I was just thinking about mm-hmm. this before we recorded was that mm-hmm. she got a lot of attention as the baby girl, you know? Mm-hmm. They had a boy, now they had a girl. I think they probably always wanted a girl. And so it was always a big deal what she was doing. Look, she's a dancer. Look, she's in gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize this till just before we recorded. I would, they'd be like, look, she could do cartwheels. I'm going to learn how to do a goddamn cartwheel. <laughs> and then I would learn how to do a cartwheel. So anything she could do that, they were, it's probably because they made a big deal out of it. Okay. So as a result, I would be, you know, learning th- from my father and then from, probably from observing, not this, my mom was a great mom, obviously great influence in my life, but as far as yeah. gender roles, maybe. If only they'd known they could have used that like power against you. Like, look how quickly she passed the SAT. Damn it, I'm going to go study. If it was true or not, maybe it worked on you. They weren't clever. Mm. Okay. (laughs) I expected to be gender neutral Mm. because I feel like I had um, my um, male influences were were definitely more on the the man's man side Mm -hmm. of things. my, uh, my father and I had an uncle I was very close to, I wouldn't say they were in touch with their feminine sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were definitely embracing more embracing of the masculine, but, um, but my uncle actually was very important to me from, uh, um, he had a lot of empathy over certain things that were very important to me. And, um, and, but I had a lot of, uh, I can't, I came from a line of, uh, this line of five sister matriarchal thing. Like my grandmother was one of five sisters who, and they were all, they, they were teachers and nurses and oh my gosh. So they passed on a non-traditional, uh, female role, um, Hmm. for that time, you know, like it, it kind of trickled down into my generation. So I, I feel like it was pretty balanced. Um, it sounds like it would Mm -hmm. be. Yeah. 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 You know, for me, I think, uh, 
if this test has any merit at all, you know, it scored me as predominantly <laughs> masculine, but whatever. But I, I, I see that as quite possible. Um, my dad was a very well-balanced male role model. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he whipped my butt when I needed it, but he was also, you know, thoughtful and he would talk to me and work things out. He was very kind and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but then I lost him when I was only 18. In a car accident. Wow. So, oh, you know, I, I think, oh, thank, thank you. It's, uh, I think probably I spent a lot of time after that subconsciously overcompensating for what is a lack of a male presence in my life. Now, he was a fantastic presence mm-hmm. up until he passed in, when I was young. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I even mm-hmm. remember calculating, you know, what is the date that I will be the age he was that I last knew him? I need to be at least that much of a man when I get there or I have failed what he tried to get me to be, how he wanted to raise me. So I I remember it was a couple of years ago. I think he died when he was exactly 50 years old and I'm 52 now. Mm -hmm. So I I had it down to the day. Like I knew the day he passed from the day he was born. And I knew the exact day that I was now older Mm -hmm. than my dad. So probably I spent a lot of that time. I need to make sure I get to be man enough by the time I hit 50. So I fulfill Mm -hmm. what he kind of, he, you know, his image in my mind. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Wow. That's wow. so profound. And that is still a young age. Amazing. You know, some people might think, yeah. oh, oh you're yeah. 18, you're an adult, but no. No, no. no. Eight, 18 yeah. is just, is just an adult aged kid. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I know that. I know that now when I was 18, I was an adult, <laughs> yeah. but now that I know looking back, oh, oh, yeah. I was an adult aged kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Looking at our children, we can, we know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, John. And I think what it oh, makes yeah. me realize is in all of this is that uh, maybe what's really important and maybe what we learned talking about this was that the, it's not surprising really, right? That the role models and the lessons that we learned were from the people that were most important in our lives and not these of course. Silly films. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Hey, that's enough of that. So look, we're going to bring out a guy now who's, again, embodies masculinity. Not only, I mean, look, talking about shorthand. He's half naked or more the whole film. I'm pretty sure his behind's hanging out at most of it. He's got leather chaps on and he's still scary as hell. He's so vulnerable because most of his body's not covered, but that dude's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, his, his role as Wes in the Road Warrior. But mm-hmm. because, I'm, of course, I'm speaking about our guest today, we'll be back in a moment with Mr. Vernon Wells. guest today first leapt off movie screens in 1981 as the psychopathic marauder Wes in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. His instantly iconic portrayal quickly led to roles working with Hollywood legends, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Hughes, and Steven Spielberg. And gratefully, our guest continues to perform today, creating one captivating character after another. Please welcome to the show, Vernon Wells. Hey, well, I am so, so happy to be here. It's uh, going to be a pleasure. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm so uh, excited to speak with you. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and I believe before I realized I was a fan of yours, I was just plain old terrified of you because of the characters that you played in the movies throughout the 1980s, uh, and some heavies as well on 1980s television. 
Um, of course, in the U.S. and around the world, we first met you as the bloodthirsty Wes in the Mad Max sequel, The Road Warrior, in 1981. But uh, I note that before that, you appeared in the 1970s on a number of police shows on Australian TV. And I've watched a number of, of your interviews in the recent years, and you seem like such a sensible, reasonable person. How in the world did George Miller, uh, the creator of the Mad Max franchise, the, the director of the films, know that you could play a maniac? George George actually um, had a whole lot of faith in me that I didn't have in myself because, uh, as you're probably aware, uh, Road Warrior was the first major thing I ever did, and um, it was a massive film. Um, I, for some reason, the character and I just seemed to settle on each other. Uh, George did a lot of work with the whole cast for about a week. We wrote biographies of uh, where our character came from and oh. how he ended up where the film began. So by the time we actually got onto the set, we all knew who we were. I mean, we knew oh. what our character was. Uh, why George decided that I could uh, do this uh, whole thing, I don't know. But I remember talking to him once about the fact that he cast me. And I said, um, you know, what, why me? I mean, you know, the, the only thing, you know, he actually didn't see me. His girlfriend, Sandy Gore at the time, came and saw a performance of a stage play I was doing uh, called Hosanna, which was written by a Canadian, Michelle Tremblay. And the uh, my entrance onto the set is I come in dressed in leather and within two minutes I'm naked um, <laughs> in front of the audience. And... Uh, so I, she said, you know, you've got to come see this guy. He just takes over the stage. Mm. He's just amazing, and um, which I never saw, but she kind of saw it, saw it from her side. And I was talking to George, and I said, so why me, George? You know, you had your choice of actors, anybody you wanted for that role, simply because um, Road Warrior had been such a huge success. And he said, yeah. He said, you know what, I needed three things. He said, I needed someone that wasn't tainted by the industry, someone mm. that, that wasn't uh, trying to second guess everything I said or everything I wanted. I and I also mm. needed somebody that, that really was prepared to go out there and do what was necessary to make it work. And he said, the third thing was very simple. I needed someone that when the women looked at him dressed the way he was, would all go and say, oh, I could, oh, yeah, in bed, in that, love it. <laughs> and he said, you know, I needed that. And I said, well, you got two out of three. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, his girlfriend was looked- his reasoning. And, and straightly <laughs> enough, it, as yeah. the years have gone by and I've, <laughs> I've looked at myself in that role, I understood what he was talking mm. about, that the, Wes came over as this villain of, of enormous, um, uh, you know, just totally enormous, over the top. Mm-hmm. But there was this sexuality about the whole thing that when sure. you looked at him and, and just saw the big blue eyes and the whole thing and the way he looked, you were like, oh, yeah, I could probably do it. Um, and I never, ever. And I swear this to you, in my whole life, never once looked at the character that way. Mm-hmm. But once it's sort of told to you often enough, you go, oh, dear God, they're right. <laughs> I didn't realize that. And I think the thing that made it work, too, on another level, is that if I had have known, if I had have been 
savvy enough within the industry that I was in, I probably would have screwed it up. I would have tried to make him sexual or I would have tried to make him this character that everybody wanted to do things with. Whereas not having a clue in that direction, I was too intent on what I was doing, trying desperately to make the role work. I didn't realize it. So it was all coming out as a natural extension of who he was and that's what made it work. Um, And I think that in itself was a lesson that, you know, sometimes as as George once said to me, um, less is always more with somebody like you. (laughs) Well, it seems like it. So, you know, that's the way it came out. And and all the three things that George, you know, said he saw in you, like you're explaining, were true, worked out to be true. And the second thing you mentioned about willing to go to do whatever it takes, it makes me think of, you know, we've heard these stories now that of the 2015 Fury Road was some really grueling physically and mentally, uh, a production that was physically and mentally challenging. Uh, they had all sorts of uh, problems. It shot over nine months. What was it like shooting Road Warrior? Does it compare to that? Um, well, actually, Mel Gibson gave me the nickname of Barometer Bum. They figured that every time the cheeks of my ass went purple, we should get a, a little bit of warmth on them. Uh, so that's what I sort of, my moniker for the whole film was, hey, Barometer Bum. So, uh, so it was a little cold. Yeah. Um, apart from that, yeah, it was grueling. But the, the, the thing about that film was that I have never been able to – I've duplicated it twice, I won't lie. But in that film, the the whole thing, there was the cast, the crew, everybody wanted to be there. Mm. Everybody wanted to be doing, making that film. And everybody was giving 150% into it. So no matter how grueling it became, no matter how hard and everything – it was fun. Right. You know, you, you were yeah. there, someone would do something silly, Mel would do something ridiculous and we'd all crack up or um, <laughs> one of the other guys would say something and we'd all laugh. It was just one of those things where there was this amazing camaraderie between the whole crew and cast and um, that's what I think made it so right. so easy to do, even though it was very, very bloody yeah. difficult. Um we were shooting under extreme conditions at times, but nobody seemed to care. You know, when you've got all those motorbikes running around in the desert and screaming up to trucks and people jumping on and off trucks. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of technical things there that can go wrong oh, sure. real easy and you can be picking bodies up. Yeah, It never did. On YouTube, there is a short, it's like six or seven minutes sort of behind the scenes of Road Warrior that was shot at the time. Uh, capturing two of the stunts. And in both stunts, the stunts went very well, they said, but in both stunts, the stunt man was injured, including one of them was the stunt director. Did you ever feel you were in any sense of danger during these, you know, s- stunt sequences? Nope. I wanted to do more. Oh, no kidding. George actually had to tie me up to keep me off it. I was all for, I was going to get out there and do it all, man. I was, I was Wes. Yeah. I mean, it, Never entered my tiny brain that at any minute I could be run over by six wheels of a very large truck. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to be out there doing it all. And there were some things that I could not have done. Uh, sure. You know, the big um, uh, jump over on the top of the uh, boardwalk when I flip over the guy's right. head and grab him and uh, hit him in the forehead. Yes. I could never have done that. There would be no way on God's given earth. I'm too big and heavy for a start. I mean, God, I'm 230 pounds, six foot one. They got a 
an actual um, gymnast to do it who was about five foot eight, weighed three pounds if he was wet. <laughs> and so it was really easy for him to do it, but I could never have done that. But I wanted to. I was so desperate to do it. Yeah, Joe, I'll do it. I'll do it. He was like, yeah, I'd like to finish the film yeah. with you. So, yeah. Well, you can't even tell during that sequence. Of course, you know, I guess it's, it's no surprise it's not you, but you can't tell. I love in that moment, too, when you headbutt that character, it seems like George added sort of a flash of white in there. So as an audience, it almost feels like we're, you know, getting struck in the head ourselves. Um, he's, he's brilliant at that. Yeah. That's, that was, that's George Miller. I mean, we're still friends. We've remained friends all, all mm. through this time. And I remember that I was in the uh, editing studio a couple of times in Sydney watching him. And it was just amazing to see how much effort he put into editing just one section of the mm. scene. He would, you know, sit there, take out half a frame, a full frame, take for hours to get it to be what he wanted. And it, it really uh, made an impression on me of what this business about is about. Mm. It's about people who are so professional and love what they do so much that they will go to any depth mm. to make it right. Yeah. And I've been fortunate to be able to carry that with me through uh, the rest of my career, which is a blessing, I think. Yes. Yeah. The um, And it shows that film. I watched it not too long ago, just a couple within the last year or so. And it's just, it sings along. It's so tight. Uh, it's almost musical in a sense, you know, the way it's cut together and the performances. Yep. Now you mentioned you're still friends with George. So of course it has me thinking, you know, we know that the, uh, the, the, um, the gentleman who, uh, was it Hugh Keysburn, I think you said his name? Hugh Keyburns, yeah. Hugh yep. Keyburn, who played a toe cutter in the first one, and then the villain in the most recent. Is there any chance you might reprise a, a role in a, some future Mad Max project? We know there's a couple they're working on, apparently. Uh, yeah, they're working on Furiosa and uh, Wasteland. Um, George and I once had a little chat about that because yeah, yeah. I was actually in Japan for the opening of Fury Road. Mm. And... Uh, he said that the the you know at one stage there was this whole underground swell of people writing to to Miller Kennedy saying Vernon should be in the new film which yeah. was Fury Road, and just and I ran into one of the co-writers at a convention in England one day and he walked up and he went message from George Miller and I went oh great and he said call off the dogs you're not doing it. <laughs> um, and it was well, this, and I never, hmm. ever expected to, and I didn't know this was happening. Sure. I was totally, you know, in the, in the back of it. And I went, what the? And I was talking to George when I was fortunate enough to be in, in Japan for the opening of Fury Road. And um, I said, I know I can't, but why wouldn't you? And he said, it's simple. The character you created became such an iconic character that no matter what I did with you mm. in the film, if you spoke or they could see your eyes or your hands, they yep. would know it was you. Yep. And then I'm doing a remake of Road Warrior. Yeah. yeah. And I went, yeah, you're right. Because people would think we were going, you know, it's, oh, you know, it's another Road Warrior. Vernon Wells is in it. Yeah. And I agreed with him. Yeah. And you know what? The, the point is he took me out of obscurity, mm. gave me the lead – in one of the major, major films of the 20th friggin' century yeah. and created a, 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 a career for me that has gone from then till now. And I'm still working continuously till now. Right. 
why would I be upset? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I always say, I'm so happy for what you did. My God, I'm yeah. not upset about it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you just have to accept sometimes. That, and he always says, it's so funny, I always, if, if I'm being asked questions and George is there, they say, you know, so, you know, you, you played Wes in the Road Warrior. How did that come about? And I always say, well, George Miller gave me my career. And he always interrupts me every time he goes, I gave him 21 lies, lines and he made it a movie, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so much, um, I, you know, it was one of those things that was organic mm. more than anything. It was just purely organic yeah. how it came about and from um, who I was and what I was uh, to total opposite to who I am. You know, my, my sister always says, he's a big cuddly bear, but never poked the bear. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, I just, it was an organic performance. And um, it took me a long time to get over it. For After I did the fourth or fifth movie over here, I, I went into this um, sudden decline. I just went headfirst down the rabbit hole. I was just so... Uh, confused and screwed up and really being over here with no one to talk to oh, it made it worse and it took me quite a while to to get myself together and to uh, be able to understand who I was and why I was and um, it's a pretty pretty terrifying thing actually I know now I knew then yeah. what a lot of these actors go through what Mel went through yeah. after he did you know five major films in a row as a major star and how it, it, it finally, it, it's just, you know, you've got nowhere to go. Yeah. No more walls to climb, no hills to, to run up and nobody to hold your hand and say, hey, dude, yeah. it's going to be okay. Yeah. You, you're on your own. And unfortunately, that can be the worst thing because once it gets in your head, you're screwed. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, obviously, look, we, we know you from your character, so we would have no idea that you were having those challenges. Um. But you mentioned how iconic the character was and how George said, look, you, it's so iconic. You, you can't, we can't top it, obviously. But it makes me, it, it makes me think about, you know, when you're cast in weird science, there is, and you play essentially, you know, they, I think they call you Lord General, but you're, you're Wes, of course. We all know you're Wes. And uh, yep. as a, you know, as a, as a fan of Road Warrior, to see you in there is so shocking uh, and I was so terrified of Wes as a 10 or 11 year old kid watching this on VHS over and over again. To see him in this film was so shocking. I felt so uncomfortable. But I think it speaks to the fact that your your role was so iconic in Road Warrior. There was a shorthand built in that, you know, John Hughes could leverage. He didn't need to explain yeah. anything about you. It was funny because I didn't want to do it. It took them um, quite a long time to convince me to mm. come over. I was still in, uh, living in Australia. And um, they rang my uh, management about five times and offering quite a bit of money at that, at that time mm. for me to go. And I kept saying, no, I'm not going to America. It terrified me. I mean, I can be blunt. It scared the shit out of me mm. to come to America. <laughs> yeah. I just did not want to be here. I, you know, I lived in a country where there were 12 actors sort of thing. You weren't in this pool <laughs> yes. of thousands, you know. Mm. It was this whole different thing. It was like, I don't want to go. I definitely don't want to go. And it took a long time to convince me. And I made up this thing. That the reason I didn't want to come was because I didn't want to play the same role over again. That's bullshit. I didn't have a clue what that meant. I didn't want to go because I was terrified. Yeah. Hmm. I, 
did what my uh, director, my um, manager asked, and that was I looked up the characters involved, like the director and the producer, and um, I loved the director. Once I, I saw the thing that he'd done, all of the kids' angst movies, you know, mm, yes. uh, <laughs> Breakfast Club. Um, right. All of them. 16 Candles. Uh, 16 Candles, yeah, all those. And he was a big kid. When I came over to uh, meet him um, for my first uh, rehearsal, when I flew in, um, he was this big kid. Mm. You know, he was like in a toy shop playing with all the toys, winding everything up and then letting them all go and see where they run. He was just the most amazing human being. Mm. And I went, oh, my God, this is going to be so much fun to do this. And they had to change the costume and things because Warner Brothers at that stage still had the um, character mm. under lock and key. So basically they changed it as much as they had to change it to not be sued by Warner Brothers. Yeah. But it was just a lot of fun to be able yeah. to be on stage and make fun okay. of yourself and the character you created mm-hmm. became such a phenomenon. You could get out there and just poke fun at yourself. And I was smart enough at that stage to realize what that meant, that I could get out there and poke fun at myself so it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it went on from there. You know, that kind of catapulted me into his next Joel Silver's next movie, which was Commando. Right. Uh, that was another huge movie and it took a lot out of me to do it. It was very, very physical movie to do with Arnie because he's a big boy and I'm a big boy, so there was a lot of physical bouncing <laughs> off each other throughout the movie. I heard you tell the story that, and you know, you were talking about how intimidated you were of Hollywood, but I heard you tell the story that you didn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger was at the time. I mean, he had made two nope. Conans. He had made a Terminator by then. He wasn't the star he is today. In fact, Commando, it just occurred to me, that was the real first action hero movie he did. The other ones were these sort of fantasy films where he was the bad guy. This was the first time he, you know, created this, uh, you know, uh, role that he would then play in many other films after that. How could you not know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is at that point? I had no clue. <laughs> I can't believe Couldn't that. even pronounce his name. <laughs> and I actually wasn't their first choice. I got um, put into the movie, I think, six or eight weeks after they started filming because the choice that they'd made for the character wasn't working. And don't ask me who it was because I have no idea and yeah. I never wanted to know. Sure. It wasn't To me, it wasn't anything to do with me. Right. And so I got brought on after they'd started and uh, Annie and I, you know, Annie was a little bit skeptical of me because I work differently to Americans. I'm kind of very quiet and and I walk around looking at cameras and lights and trying to figure out the whole scene and and the people I'm working with and I mumble through (laughs) all the pre-seat stuff but he was a little worried that, you know, but he, he made one little mistake with me. He sort of said to Joel Silver a little too loud, he thought that I should recast because I was a pussy. And um, I'm an Australian. You know, them's fighting words, dude. Uh, and so, you know, the first thing we did yeah. ever together was where I have the knife to his throat and I say, you know, if I'd had my way, I would have cut your throat. That was the first thing we ever did. Mm. And um, so Joel said, well, look, to him, let, to Anna, let, let's just do this scene and if, if it doesn't work out, then we'll, we'll stop production and we'll recast. So, uh, you know, in front of the camera, action, I leap on him, do my whole scene, 
walk off into the sunset and uh, Joel Silver walks over and says, so what do you think? Apparently, I can't tell you it's true or not, but apparently he looked at Joel and said, never give him a real knife. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. We became very good friends and had a lot of fun doing the film. That's awesome. Now, what I what I heard or read that was that you know Joel Silver offers you the role based on you know he he produced Weird Science, of course, but he must have been familiar with the Road Warrior as well, I would think, because I don't know if there's oh, yeah. nothing weird. Okay, because Weird Science wouldn't give him enough to know that you could play Bennett. I wouldn't think. Yeah, well, he 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 did Weird Science. That was the first thing he brought me over for, and right. then um, he actually took me to the director. While I was here, after I'd done a finished Weird Science, because he took me around to a few of the casting agents, oh. and um, the director said, no, I've already got a cast, and Joel said, all right. And uh, that was the end of it to me, and I mean, I flew back to Australia. I was directing commercials at that stage, so I really, you know, I was sort of mystified by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd had my 15 minutes, so I was happy mm-hmm. to just drift off into the background again. Yep. <laughs> but it didn't work out that way. No. He uh, <laughs> Six weeks or so later, when they started filming, they got me to come over, yeah. which was which was a lot of fun because I mean that took me from that into uh, Steven Spielberg's Inner Space. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, of course, directed by the uh, by Joe Dante, who had you know yes. a number of different things in the 1980s that are classics uh, that we love, including Gremlins, for example. But yeah, Steven Spielberg, you couldn't do better than that. Certainly, you heard of him at the time. Um, um, <laughs> You see, no, little come boys on. in the country. You didn't know who he was? <laughs> I grew up on a farm. <laughs> I had no idea who anybody was. <laughs> I was like the little boy walking around with his mouth open going, oh, <laughs> wow. Um, you know, when I got introduced to Joe Dante, when I, I was flying back to Australia, actually, and they rang. Uh, they rang me while I was in the limo going to the airport and they said, you've got to go across to Joe Dante's office for an interview for a film he's doing at uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's. I knew who Steven Spielberg was. Still Steven Spielberg's involved in it. So, and it's like, uh, and they said, no, you've got plenty of time. Just So I went over and um, I walked into a room full of people that I looked at and I went, I have seen these people in every goddamn movie I've ever seen in my life. Why am I here? (laughs) And I walked in and Joe never told me a thing. Mm. He just said, uh, there's a few things you should know about this. And I said, "Uh uh-huh, what's that? And he said, well, you will be wearing sunglasses and you'll be mute and you'll have a fake arm. And I went, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it seems that Stephen wants to find out if you can act. <laughs> and it was this hysterical thing that they put together to see because Joe used to say to me, little, because apparently I'm big enough to just sort of like Arnie, I can mm. take over a scene by just standing there. I see, yeah. And mm. so um, the, the part of it was it was funny was the table had a, a glass top on it, which, you know, like in America – the tabletops just sit on the legs. Sure, the glass ones. There's yeah. no nothing securing them. Yeah. And as I stood up to go out, I pushed down on the table, and the table just came straight up. And I went, "Oh shit!" And the table just kept coming. And I ended up on the floor with this glass table on no. top of me. And uh, Joe Dandy walked over and looked down at me. And he went, 
<laughs> I've seen a lot of things done to get a role in a movie, but this one tops everything. <laughs> and I was just laying it and I went, that's it. I'm living. It's finished. I flew home. And when I got into my parents or my mother and brother at the airport to pick me up, when I arrived in Melbourne, there's a guy there with my name on a placard. And I thought, oh, my brother, the dumb shit. I figured he'd got a limo for me just being an ass. And so I walked over to this poor guy and I went, okay, who put you up to this? And he's like, what? I said, I'm Vernon Wells. Who put you up to this crap? And he went, oh, sorry, Mr. Wells, but I have a letter for you. And then all kinds of dumb shit goes through your mind because I'm thinking, oh, God, my mother or my father, oh, something's sure. happened mm. or maybe my sister. And I'm like, oh, shit. Gives me the letter. I open it and it's a, um, a letter from Joe Darby saying, uh, you need to be back here the tickets at the ticket office, so uh, just keep moving sort of thing. And I'm walking and my mother and my brother are behind the line where you could – and I walk up and I say, hi, Mum, big kiss. Hi, I said, big shake hands, and I went uh, – so I'm getting on another aeroplane oh. and I'm going back. <laughs> like, what? I went, yeah, it seems that um, I have a film I have to go back to. So I had to come back oh. and do – in a space, which was amazing, but I had to go up to um, uh, San Francisco and do all these molds and things of my head, of my body cast, the, right. the whole thing. And I'm a real pain in the ass, seriously, <laughs> when all that stuff's being done. I really am. And I was giving everybody heaps because I hate being enclosed in anything. So sure. when they're doing my head and thing, you just have two tubes in your nose so you can breathe yeah. and they put stuff over your eyes so you won't get – and then they just coat your whole face. Mm. And you're like, I'm going to die. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I am just going to die. Yeah. And I'm being a real little pain in the ass. So the next one they did of me was my whole body cast because I had to make the little me inside right. of right. Uh, Martin Short. So – I'm uh, standing there and I'm in this body and they got my arms straight out and my legs and, and it's getting harder and then it's sort of at that semi-hard thing and, and three of the guys walk up and one each on each side of me, they lift me and one lifts my legs and I thought, well, they're taking me now somewhere to cut me out of this thing. They take me down into the front foyer and they put me between two desks and everybody that came in knocked on it went, anybody there? <laughs> And I couldn't say anything. I got chewed up my nose oh, and my whole head. It was their way of, of, mm -hmm. of saying asshole. <laughs> yeah, I'll get, teach you to complain. Uh, that yeah. was that film. So it was kind of fun. I liked it actually. I thought it was just all that kind of thing. I love. It's oh. like it's just it's part of the game. You mm. know, you're just having fun and nobody's getting hurt by it. Yeah. But yeah, I was a little thing in between two chairs or desks or something about an hour and a half while I dried. Yeah. And that's got to be the first film where you're really uh, acting using with special effects, right? Because you're in that suit at some point and, you know, uh -huh. pretending. what is the experience like to go from the very sort of visceral, you know, I, I guess sort of gritty road warrior commando where stuff's happening right there on set to suddenly, you know, it's, it's more pretend and make-believe in the sense that you're, you know, in a small, you're shrunk and you're in a body. Is it a whole other level of challenge for you? When I'm working, I, I love what I'm doing and the things that go on around me. So I'm more interested in what's happening. So all those effects, I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So so who's going to do that? You. Oh, me? Oh, that is it was like that kind of thing all the way through it. I just had so much fun and 
doing all of that. But if you watch the movie carefully, I could speak. Uh, Stephen didn't take all of it off me. He gave me one chance it didn't come off. And there's a scene where mm. the gorgeous lady who's my boss is walking up and down in front of me telling me that I, you know, I let uh, Martin Short get away when I should. You're, you're, you're letting me down. You're a disappointment. And she says something and I go, and I've got my hand up and I'm just about to, and she goes, don't say it. <laughs> and she keeps walking. So you know that I can't, I just don't. Wow. You know, again, it's sort of a testament to your performance, you know, you're much like a, you know, like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, you did so much work without talking that you're still as menacing as you were in prior films. And only now am I realizing that you didn't say a single word. It's just all yep. looks. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, that was actually interesting because it made me realize that acting is visceral. Mm. You know, it, it comes out of you. It's not, oh. it's not what the camera or the, the lighting's doing so much as the character is who you are. Right. You know, you just have to look at something or move your head slightly or, or just the movements in who you are, the way you position your body and things like that, that is what the character is. And I learned that just doing that film that you can create so much because mm. Joe was a wonderful teacher. I mean, I adore Joe. And he would just say to me, you know, just bring it down a little bit. You, you're in the, you know, you're a big, big presence. So just bring it down. Cause my energy would come out, you know, I'm, I'm so energetic. It would be like, ah. <laughs> even though I can't speak. Right. And it would overpower everybody. So he would be like, just drop that down so that you can, um, keep everything, you know, within the bounds of what everybody else is doing. And I learned that, you know, you don't have to be loud. You don't have to be big. All you have to be is who you are. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this. So obviously those are the films you were in. And you were in, look, you were in a ton of TV shows we loved growing up too. You made appearances in The Fall Guy, Hunter, Knight Rider, MacGyver. There, there was this phenomenon that happened. And I want to say it began around Road Warrior was probably the biggest one. But you had, uh, you know, we had, you know, we've talked about in, in, in pop culture, the having had the British invasion in the, in the 60s, music wise. And then we had a British, a second wave of British invasion in the 80s. But we had an Australian invasion in the 1980s where by the end of the decade, uh, everyone in the United States, I don't know if it, globally, I would assume, was in love with your country and its culture. I'm um, talking about the road war. You've got Olivia Newton-John, uh, bands like Men at Work, Midnight Oil, Paul Hogan. I used to watch his sketch comedy show. They had aired it in, in out of New York City where I was living at the time. I knew that before Crocodile Dundee. Then you've got that. You've got uh, Mark Jackson, Jocko, the uh, footballer who yep. doing commercial. Were you aware of the amount of love that folks had for Australians in Australia during the, that decade? Oh, oh yeah. You, you found, and still to this day, mostly they love our voice because <laughs> we have that way of talking. And also we're, we're very irreverent with everything we do. Um, and I think because Australians grew up without this whole, um, I hate to say it like this, but it's the only way of explaining it, this Second Amendment attitude, mm. Australians grew up with we are who we are. Mm. You know, if you see a, a really pretty girl, you say, wow, you look amazing. You know, I love that, that outfit you're wearing. It's gorgeous. And they would either give you a kiss on the forehead or just stand there and go, you are so sweet. 
can't do that here. Yeah. Because to do that, you're, you're looking at someone saying you're sexually molesting me. Well, guess what? Australians do it all the time because it's in our nature. We just don't know. You know, we don't do it with any pretext right. or anything else. We do it because it's a beautiful woman that looks beautiful. And so you, you comment, you know, that, that outfit looks wonderful. You know, that really does look beautiful. Mm. No, oh, you yes. look so good in that. You know, I, I oh, think yeah. the difference is sleaze and reality. Huh. That is, Yeah. Wow. We're not sleazy about it. We just say what we think and yeah. then we move on. So Vernon, I see we've been speaking for a little while here. So I wanted to wrap up by saying thank you so much, not only for your time today, but being a part of our, obviously my youth, because I grew up watching you and quite honestly being afraid of you through your view, your characters. I would never imagine you were a, you know, a bear, what was a teddy bear. So many iconic roles that uh, meant and still continue to mean so much to us today. And uh, thank you so much for that. Thank you. From my heart to your heart, may all the blessings that you deserve rain down upon you. Such a sweet guy in mm. such a contrast to the roles he played. Yes. And only yep. after speaking to him would I have learned that, you know, otherwise in my mind. Now there's like two Vernons, right? Right. Mm-hmm, like this mm-hmm. is what Kat was saying, there's three wills. There's like two Vernons at least. <laughs> Terrifying man and like the actual human who portrayed mm-hmm. these characters. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in prepping to uh, to sit in on the show, I'm like, Vernon Wells, I know the name, but I don't recognize, yeah. like I couldn't like pick him out of a lineup necessarily. And so I went back sure. and I'm like, I don't know if this is an insult in the, uh, in the acting profession, but he is yeah. a, a, an amazing character actor. Like he's not, mm-hmm. I don't think he's a superstar movie star, but everything he's in, he is an yep. ab- he he sucks all the air out of the room. He is the focal point. <laughs> He's able to get the focus mm-hmm. on him. And I, like this actor's actor, like you look at him and you're like, oh, that guy, yep. I've seen him in everything. And yep. he's mm-hmm. he's always, regardless of what role he's playing, he has a presence that is is charismatic, somewhat intimidating, mm-hmm. but certainly yeah. somewhat certainly well, depending <laughs> upon the role, it's intimidating mm-hmm. and and always a scene stealer. What a guy. Yeah. I love um his comments about uh, being an Australian, <laughs> about, um, yeah. you know, I'm from Australia. <laughs> There's a, a certain ruggedness, ruggedness and um, oh, what else that comes along with it? Like just saying things yeah. as they are. Being, yeah. That's right. Being yeah. Just being candid, being frank. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, we were talking about earlier about the machismo in the 1980s that, you know, again, this is just an interesting example, I guess, just to acknowledge the fact, and it's not surprising he's an actor, but that a guy who seems such a, Teddy bear, I think, as he described mm-hmm. himself or his said his grandkids describe him, mm-hmm. you know, played some of the most macho characters we had in the 1980s. Yep. Let off some steam. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> is, that right. hey, this is, be- is that Is that it? Is that the best Arnold we get out of you? You know, if I could think of another phrase, I don't know. You got, you got an Arnold in you? I don't really have one. But. I don't. Can, can we go, can we switch to the puppet? I'd rather have the puppet, Will. Yeah. Can I just say, I'm a little upset you didn't invite me on the puppet episode. I'm a huge Wait, fan of puppets. Huge puppets. Is that fan. right? We'll do it again. Mm. I heard the puppet quiz. You guys were whiffing the puppet quiz. It was, oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> and I tried to rig it for them. I was so they, mortified. Uh, I took everything I knew about the puppets that they knew from media and gave them those clues. It's horrifying. Oh, I was screaming at my radio in the car. Screaming. Yeah. Oh, like, man. All right. I, I'm going to love doing this I right now. I can't talk about that quiz. Okay. I'll tell you right now. Our show is brought to you. This is so exciting, isn't it? 
Yes. Some of our wonderful supporters, including our very special Secret of My Success level Patreon supporters, John Henderson. All right. Coletta. <laughs> Bart Arnold. John Kaminsky. And John Reddick, who's sitting with us today. I mean, what an hey. honor. One of our producers, so to speak, is actually on the yes. show, too. You yes. know, Patreon is, uh, I, I'm so sick of people that go, oh, you're a podcast. Why should we pay you for that? You're right. You shouldn't have to pay for it. You should want to yep. pay to support people mm. who are doing independent art and work. Look, on Gen X Grown Up, we have Patreon supporters. We don't require mm. anything, just like you don't. But when you're mm. putting out, and where people don't realize how much work it is to regularly put out sure. content like this, quality content mm. like you hear on 1980s mm -hmm. Now, not just mm. guys on a Skype call that can't figure out what to say. This is a production. <laughs> Supporting <laughs> any kind of art that you appreciate gives a message that that's what you like. You want more of that. You don't want them to quit. And that's the reason I support 1980s now, despite the fact I'm also a content creator, maybe because I am, I understand how important it is mm. to the show and to you guys personally, and to make sure that this continues. Very well said. Do you also like hearing your name read aloud? Doesn't hurt. <laughs> 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 but I, I would continue to do it if you didn't. So how's that? Yeah. Well, we're very grateful for your support. And oh yeah. Other folks, John and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And when this show's done edited, yeah, I think it will be worthy of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dollar or two. Who knows? Who knows what it sounds like? All right. Hey, everybody. We will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. See ya. Bye-bye now.